Insulin is a small little, what's called a peptide hormone. Basically means it's kind of like a little protein. So there are insulin receptors on every cell. It will stimulate a cell to store energy. That's its theme. Insulin resistance is when two things are happening together. That is when some cells have stopped responding to insulin properly and we have elevated insulin. I just found that insulin resistance was really significantly contributing to virtually every chronic disease. An ideal life is one that is spent not spiking insulin all the time. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I am so excited about this episode. I know it's going to be so popular, especially given how much we talk about insulin on my other show, the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Now I have this episode to constantly refer listeners to because we cover it all. We dive deep into all things insulin, blood sugar control, what's going on with that. I really, really think you guys will enjoy this conversation. This is one of those episodes where the transcript will definitely come in handy. That will be at the show notes. Those are at melanieavalon.com slash insulin. There will also be an episode giveaway for this episode. For that, just join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. If you enjoy this episode, you will probably love, love the episode I did recently about continuous glucose monitors. That was with Kara Collier, the founder of NutriSense. Definitely check that out because continuous glucose monitors can be game changers because they show you in real time how your blood sugar is reacting to what you eat, what you don't eat, your exercise, your lifestyle, just everything. Wearing a CGM these past few months has been one of the most eye-opening experiences of my life. I really, really mean that. I'll put a link to the episode in the show notes, and you can also get 15% off of the CGM. For that, just go to melanieavalon.com slash CGM. Also follow me on Instagram, guys. I am doing a lot of giveaways there, so that's really fun. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. For listeners who listen to my other podcast, the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, I have been teasing this conversation in this episode for so long. Ever since I started listening to podcast interviews with this fabulous guest and then read his book when it came out, I knew I had to find him and have a conversation with him because he dives so, so deep into something that I think personally is so huge and not really discussed in the intensity and nuance that it should be. And that is the role of insulin in our health, in our diet, our fitness, and all of the conditions that we're often experiencing today. So this wonderful guest who I've been told I can call Ben, but I am here with Dr. Benjamin Bickman. He is the author of Why We Get Sick, The Hidden Epidemic at the Root of Most Chronic Disease and How to Fight It. Friends, get this book. (laughs) Well, listen to this episode and then get this book. And I have so many questions for you, Ben. So thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, Melanie, my heavens, what a generous introduction. I am delighted to be here and to talk about insulin and how relevant it is. And at the end of this, I bet all your listeners will feel like they've just kind of gone through a masterclass of human metabolism. At least that's my goal. Yes, it's a great goal. So let's do it. So for listeners, a lot of you might be familiar with Dr. Bickman already, having read his book or listened to different interviews that he's done. But for those who are not familiar, he earned his PhD in bioenergetics, and he was a postdoctoral fellow with the Duke National University of Singapore in metabolic disorders. And he is currently a scientist and associate professor at Brigham Young University. And like we just said, he has a focus on understanding the role of elevated insulin in regulating obesity and diabetes. So I really wanted to bring you on the show. So I, I sought you out myself through your college email. And then like, I think a few weeks later, your either your agent or publicist or somebody was like, can you bring him on the show? I was like, oh, he's already coming on. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, he's actually a family friend. So it's nothing so formal. I'm not, I'm not polished enough to have my own publicist. Oh, well, he's doing, he's doing a good job. He says he is. So I thought that was so great. Oh, and actually, it was also funny. Last quick story. So he sent me a copy of your book to read. And then like the next day, I got another copy of your book from, because I've been wearing a continuous glucose monitor. One of the companies sent me your book. And I was like, your book galore just keeps showing up at my door. Now you can re-gift. I, can, I know, I know. I'm good for Christmas. So in any case, to start things off, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your personal story and what brought you to where you are today, especially with your focus on metabolic health disorders, insulin, brought you to write this book, all of that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again. Uh, I, what a fun, what a fun opportunity. My interest really started because of my interest in athletics. Now, I was never overly talented as an athlete, but I was always involved and, and always interested in, in, involved in athletics and interested in how to improve. And that meant at the end of my undergraduate degree, having, having studied exercise science, I felt that there was more to learn. I had really just become increasingly curious and that got me on the path to get a master's degree in exercise physiology. But Towards the end of that, I was actually becoming increasingly disinterested in the muscle, which is what had been my primary focus. You know, how do, what are the signals that make muscles bigger and better? And my interest had shifted to fat cells. And I was increasingly interested in why it is that if someone is overweight, they have such a significantly increased risk of so many diseases, not just type 2 diabetes, but also heart disease and certain cancers and liver problems and on and on. And then towards the end of my master's degree, I almost accidentally stumbled across a manuscript that had been published just a few years prior. And so this would have been in the early, uh, in the late 90s is when this manuscript had been published. And what, what it did, it, what it found was that fat cells released hormones, pro-inflammatory hormones called cytokines. And these cytokines would drive insulin resistance through the body. And that was so eye-opening to me because it not only revealed to me for the first time, again, first time I had seen it, although there had been other instance, evidence for this prior, but that fat cells were endocrine organs. So fat cells are actively producing and secreting molecules that will 
tell other cells in far parts of the body what to do. And that is how we define an endocrine organ. So it revealed to me that fat cells are endocrine organs, something like the adrenal glands or the thyroid gland. And also that the, that the, the fat cell then has a mechanism to help explain the connection to type 2 diabetes, helping us understand at the time this new term that was being coined, diabesity, this, this phenomenon where we see obesity and diabetes always occurring together. It was perhaps because of these fat cells that were getting too big. So that, that began an interest for me to shift my focus away from exercise and to start looking more, more directly at disease like obesity and diabetes, which is what I was mostly interested in at the time, and to do so through the lens of the fat cell. And that's what I was able to focus on in my doctoral work and more in my postdoctoral work, where it was more specifically studying a condition called insulin resistance. And that, you know, if we sort of zoom ahead in time, I've been a professor for 10 years now, and my, my first teaching assignment that I was given at my university was to teach a class called Patho physiology. And patho just means sick, and physiology is just the body's systems. And so by the time the student is taking this class, they've learned how the body works when it works well, and then they start to learn how it works when it's not working well. And actually, full disclosure, I felt very inadequate for that job. I, have, I had never taken, in fact, to this day, I have never taken pathophysiology as a class and so to have been given that as an assignment was a bit sobering for me, but I felt somewhat prepared or qualified because my research focus had been kind of the two most common, you know, metabolic problems, at least obesity and diabetes. And so I thought, well, I can just sort of play to those strengths. And, and so when I developed the diabetes lecture, for example, I made sure to emphasize that there's this condition called insulin resistance that is really foundational to type 2 diabetes. It is the fundamental cause of the disease. And then when I would start preparing the lecture on, say, Alzheimer's disease, I wondered whether there might be some role for insulin resistance. I didn't know of any at the time, or I'd heard, you know, just hints or whispers of it. But I thought, if I can find some relevance to insulin resistance, then at least it gives me something that I can speak on with some high degree of authority and maintain the respect of these little 20-year-olds. And, and so I did so, and I was, was surprised at the amount of evidence that suggested that insulin resistance is, in fact, somewhat fundamental to Alzheimer's disease. And I did the same process and continued to be amazed, although increasingly less amazed as it continued to become relevant, that I just found that insulin resistance was really foundational in, in either directly causing or significantly contributing to virtually every chronic disease from, from Alzheimer's that I've mentioned to various forms of heart disease and elevated blood pressure, even to, think, to things as seemingly bizarre as infertility, like erectile dysfunction in men or polycystic ovary syndrome in women, the more I looked, the more I found that insulin resistance was playing a part. And I thought that I had realized some, some important truth in, in, in how we look at disease. And I thought this is something that ought to be not only understood more, namely insulin resistance, but also appreciated in a clinical setting. And so that was, that was largely the impetus for the book. I, I, had, I had this sort of vision, which admittedly I think is a little silly and, and probably will never be realized, but of a patient talking with a doctor 
and the doctor looking at the patient's steadily climbing glucose and steadily climbing blood pressure and and before just giving an anti-diabetic drug and an anti-hypertensive drug the physician would pause and then uh, and then wonder to what degree might insulin resistance be causal here to these disorders and then actually test for insulin resistance and then if it's found that the patient has insulin resistance well then that becomes the point of attack the physician, rather than giving these two distinct drugs, realizes that these drugs would simply be addressing symptoms of one common problem, and that would be insulin resistance. And once we appreciate the role for insulin resistance, we can address it through lifestyle, which is absolutely, quantifiably, the best way to improve the problem. So that's the kind of long journey over the last 25 years of me as a curious undergraduate, really, and then getting to the point where I am now running the metabolism and diabetes research labs at my university. Understanding insulin is essential to understanding metabolic health. Oh my goodness, I am loving this conversation so much and I'm having to I'm having to stop myself because I have so many like rabbit hole tangent questions that I want to ask but I know we should probably lay down some foundational groundwork first. But actually I have a, a story for you that you'll probably like because you were talking about your vision with a doctor and or with doctors and their relationship with patients and testing for insulin. So like I said I've been wearing a CGM now for about a little bit over a month. We can talk maybe about CGMs later in the show, but it's been really eye-opening for me. And my fasting blood sugar is, it's good, but I sort of, <laughs> I want it to always be better. So I was talking with my endocrinologist and said that I wanted to work on my fasting blood sugars. And she was like, well, you know, it might be more beneficial rather than testing blood sugar for us to test insulin. And I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is such a good moment. That is not common. Yeah, I know. So I was like, I have to tell you. <laughs> so, so the changes are happening. I have hope that it will continue to go that way. And we can talk about measuring insulin too. So mine was 4.5, which made me happy because I thought that it might be higher. But in your book, you said less than six was a good thing to aim for. But stepping back a little bit. So insulin, this is a very basic question, but what is insulin? And what makes it unique in the body? Like, I love how you talk about how it, it really does affect, I mean, I don't know if it affects every cell. No, everyone. No, you're right. Literally, literally every cell. And I don't use the word literally too liberally. Literally every cell. Wow. See, that's huge. Oh, it, it matters. Yeah. And so insulin is a small little, what's called a peptide hormone. Basically means it's kind of like a little protein that, that the pancreas makes. And everyone makes it unless the person is a type 1 diabetic. Type 1 diabetics have lost those insulin-producing cells. And because insulin is essential for survival, then, then the type 1 diabetic will thrive and, and survive and thrive by giving themselves daily injections of insulin. So we need it. It is essential. It, it, every cell, like we mentioned, every cell in the body will respond to insulin. So there are insulin receptors on every cell. So basically little little doors that only insulin will come and knock on. And we typically look at insulin strictly through the lens of glucose control, but that's tremendously unfair. Insulin can elicit dozens, hundreds of, of different cellular processes in the body, in, in, in the cell, in every cell. And, and, but, but it's true, insulin does control glucose, and that's certainly what it's mostly known for. So when someone eats a starchy or sugary meal, blood glucose levels will climb. That 
is unhealthy if they are elevated for too long. In fact, it's, it's, it's actually lethal. And so thank heavens, we have a molecule that can come in, knock on the doors of cells, and then in certain cells, not all, in certain cells, that knock will result in different doors opening, allowing the glucose to come rushing from the blood into the cells for the cells to either use for energy or to store for later use. Whether it stays stored as glucose or whether it gets converted to fat just kind of depends on the cell. But insulin tells cells what to do with energy. That's, when it, that's really the theme of insulin because insulin doesn't stimulate glucose uptake into every cell. For example, it does tell the muscle cells to take in glucose, but it doesn't tell the liver cells to take in glucose. The liver can just take in glucose without insulin. But nevertheless, insulin will tell the liver what to do with the energy that it has. And the theme, again, insulin's theme is to store energy. Insulin wants cells to take in macronutrients and, and things like amino acids and to make bigger molecules from them. Whether it is taking in glucose or fatty acids to make triglycerides to store fat, or whether it's taking in glucose to create glycogen to store glucose, or whether it's stimulating the uptake of amino acids to make new proteins into those cells, and, and many, many more. Insulin is anabolic. It will stimulate a cell to store energy. That's its, that's its theme. Now, in the case of insulin resistance, which is you know, the main point of my research in a way and the main point of the books, most certainly, insulin resistance is when two things are happening together and they always happen together. That is when some cells, not all, but some cells have stopped responding to insulin properly and we have elevated insulin. And that is such an important kind of second or other side of the coin. It's not just a matter of insulin not working well at all cells. That's a part of it. And that's why we define it as insulin resistance. Because like, for example, the muscle cells, they do become insulin resistant. And that means they cannot take in as much glucose. And because a muscle is the main consumer of glucose, if its glucose uptake is compromised, now we have glucose lingering in the blood. And thus we would see a person's blood glucose climbing over time and just genuinely be elevated. But other cells don't become insulin resistant. And now they suffer because the insulin is too high. So now insulin is overactivating them. And one incredible example is a type of cell in ovaries. There's a type of cell in ovaries called the theca cells. And theca cells are the cell that's responsible for converting testosterone into estrogens because it's a little known fact all estrogens in men or women were once androgens namely testosterone and it's just that the testes and the ovaries convert these androgens into estrogens and of course the ovaries do it more than the testes do which is why women have higher estrogens than men do the theca cells respond perfectly to insulin they do not become insulin resistant but because the insulin levels themselves are higher now the insulin is doing too much at the theca cells. And this too much actually is, is activating an enzyme that inhibits the conversion. It blocks the ovaries, the theca cells, from converting androgens to estrogens. And so the woman now has ovaries that are releasing too many androgens, making her body hair a little more coarse, you know, making her facial hair more coarse, even making her go thin on her hair on top, like typical male pattern baldness. But also importantly, she starts to she doesn't have enough estrogens being produced and that means the menstrual cycle is disrupted 
and and she may have follicles developing in her ovaries, but never one that actually ovulates. And so all those little follicles stick around, making the ovaries get several times bigger than they should as they're loaded with follicles, and, and thus she has PCOS. So insulin resistance, again, just so that we have a common kind of definition here, it's a problem where, first of all, some cells in the body aren't responding well to insulin, and then second, insulin levels themselves are higher than they were before. That, those two together, is what we should define as insulin resistance when we think of it in a person. Okay, this is so great. Oh, I have so many, so many questions to that. Yeah, that was a big dump right there, wasn't it? That was a lot of info. One quick clarifying question. So you're talking about how insulin, you know, is responsible for ushering energy into cells or unlocking cells to accept energy. So you talked about glucose and amino acids. Like, does insulin usher fatty acids into cells? Yeah, that's a great question. Insulin is necessary at some basal level for there to be these fatty acid transporters, but insulin itself, if insulin goes up, it's not, it doesn't stimulate the fatty acid transporters to be any more active. Elevated insulin isn't necessary for fatty acid transport. It is, it is most certainly necessary for glucose transport and to other degrees, varying degrees, also essential for amino acid transport. Okay, so if we're in a really low insulin state, fatty acids can still be going in and out of cells, but glucose would just be coming out. Well, I guess we'd be in a fasted state. No, no, you're, you're right. Yeah. So if insulin, if insulin is down, a fatty acid could still go into a fat cell or any cell to be used. A muscle cell would greedily gobble up fat to be used for energy. And in a fat cell, as fat would be coming in to be stored as triglyceride, at this, because insulin is low, you would you would actually be a net efflux or a net loss of fat where you would be breaking down more fat than you would be taking in, but it would still be taking fatty acids in. So like if a person, and I don't know if this situation ever happens, but I'm just trying to understand how things go down. So if a person, let's say they had high blood sugar from gluconeogenesis from the liver, but they were like low insulin, like would that glucose in the bloodstream not be able to enter any cells except for like muscle because of them stimulating? What a great question. Yeah, yeah, no, I love what you're thinking. So you're really kind of weaving together some some excellent, interesting biochemistry here. Yeah, so gluconeogenesis, as, as you note, is the process whereby the liver is making glucose from kind of scraps. And in fact, the predominant scrap is actually lactate. Lactate provides the, the, the backbone for, for almost, for the majority, I think it's about 60%, of all the glucose that is produced from the from the liver, so in gluconeogenesis might actually be more. So, nevertheless, if insulin is down, gluconeogenesis will be activated, and so too would would glycogenolysis, the breakdown of glucose of stored glucose in the liver. So that that would it would what wouldn't happen is it would never produce so much glucose to result in a big insulin spike. What happens in that sort of I, I really it would be a fasted state is the most is the most obvious instance of this if if a person's fasting insulin has come down and that disinhibits these glucose producing processes in the liver insulin basically gets out of the way and now the liver starts releasing glucose and that means the pancreas will still be producing insulin because if there's glucose in the blood then you need insulin in the blood the beta cells of the pancreas would be stimulating 
stimulated to continue to release insulin, but it kind of reaches this low kind of basal agreement where the liver is producing enough glucose, which is driving a certain amount of insulin production from the beta cells, but it's not, a, it's not too much insulin because if insulin went too high, then it would turn off those glucose producing processes in the liver. And so they just sort of come to a, an agreement, this homeostasis, where there's always this, this kind of basal amount of glucose being released and a basal amount of insulin, but one never really triggering the other. You know, if glucose got too high from that gluconeogenesis, then it would stimulate a big insulin spike, and then the insulin spike would turn off the gluconeogenesis, you know, which if they're fasting wouldn't be good because then you have some cells that would starve because of the lack of glucose. So I guess there's sort of this yin and yang, this delicate orchestra where these, these two instruments, gluconeogenesis and insulin, start to play together, but quietly. That was one of my big questions, so I'm glad you went there. Okay, so if there's the bloodstream and the glucose in the blood, and we have the liver that can create glucose, we have the pancreas that can release insulin, and then I'm assuming we have the brain. Like, where's the monitoring happening? And like that communication between these different organs and the bloodstream, how are they communicating? Yeah, well, I would. That's a great question. I would say that it's it's communicating directly. There's a direct communication between the. Well, I, I shouldn't say direct. It, it it really is the two signals of of glucose and insulin, kind of, well, and others. To be honest, during fasting, glucagon becomes relevant as well. But there are these inputs that are going to be signaling at the liver and the pancreas. And from the pancreas, we would have signals like, let's just say insulin, I guess, to keep it simple, that it, if it had its way, it would be telling the liver to stop releasing glucose. Insulin abhors breaking molecules down. That is catabolic, which is antithetical to insulin's anabolic role. So if insulin had its way, it would be stopping any cell from sharing any energy, including the liver breaking down glucose or making glucose, but also even the fat cell from, from releasing fats. And so the insulin settles down to a basal level, like your fasting insulin of four microunits per mil. That would be a basal level that would not be inhibiting. It would be tapping the brakes a little bit on the liver. It would also be tapping the brakes a, a little bit on ketogenesis Insulin abhors the production of ketones. I say abhors as if insulin has a personality and a will of its own, but you know what I'm saying. I think it helps create a picture. Okay, good, good. Insulin wants to inhibit the breakdown of glycogen and the production of glucose. It also wants to inhibit the breakdown of fat and the production of ketones. But say the four microunits per mil that you have, it's not enough to inhibit it all the way. It's just tapping the brakes a little bit. And it, it's, it, it, that basal level of, of insulin is partly driven by the basal amount of glucose that the liver itself is releasing. So you kind of looking for a one, there's no one single point of regulation. It's going to be a mix of regulate, regulatory signals at the pancreas, at the liver, constantly kind of relying on the signal coming from the other. You know, the, the pancreas is constantly relying on the glucose, which is the signal coming from the liver, if you will. And the liver is constantly relying on the signal from the pancreas, like, for example, insulin but also glucagon, kind of know what it should be doing. So they're each relying on the signal from the other to make sure that they're playing harmoniously, or in other words, maintaining homeostasis. And, and the ketone, of course, that, that's, I didn't necessarily mean to bring in that topic now, but it's just more reflective of the overall role that insulin plays 
in, in truly being the master regulator of fuel use in the body. And I, I mean that. It, it, it has a role. It influences nutrient regulation in a way that, to my knowledge, no other hormone even comes close. This is so fascinating. And you were speaking about PCOS. So is it accepted in the, in the medical community that like insulin is the cause of PCOS? No, it, it's not. It, it's certainly very incre- It's certainly very appreciated. But I know on social media, I've been somewhat grilled in the past because people will kind of invoke these instances of, well, there's what about lean women who, who, who have PCOS and they obviously don't have insulin resistance. And I actually say, well, yeah, they probably still do, actually. So I very much defend that perspective. Now, because I'm a scientist and, and I try to be a good one, that, that does mean that I also need to be humble. And, and so what I mean by that is I certainly suggest that insulin resistance is absolutely essential to polycystic ovary syndrome. I also would humbly acknowledge there could be an instance where insulin resistance isn't the fundamental cause, but I, I don't know of it. Now, so but even in the case of the lean woman who they'd say, well, she's lean and she doesn't, she's not overweight and diabetic, there was a study published just a few years ago that found that even in lean women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, with ovary syndrome, I mean, they still have insulin resistance in their fat cells, that you can detect a significant amount of insulin resistance in their fat cells, even compared to other women of comparable body size who don't have polycystic ovary syndrome. So even when you look in the, in the lean woman with PCOS, it's almost certainly the case that her, she still does have insulin resistance. It just isn't going to be quite as kind of whole body or universally obvious, you know, throughout her body. But when you do some tests to look at the insulin resistance in the fat cells, which I think is relevant because I actually believe that's where insulin resistance starts then you detect the insulin resistance nevertheless, even though she doesn't fit the profile, if you will. Yeah, that's one of my current obsessions. And you touched on it multiple times already in this conversation. And that's the role of fat cells and insulin resistance. And I think I first started getting really interested in this when I was at like a very low weight and wanting to gain weight. And I was researching like how fat cells gain weight. And I was learning how a lot of people who are actually thin or underweight may actually have fat cells that are potentially more inflammatory or more insulin resistant. In your book, you talk all about the difference between fat cells that split and form new fat cells versus fat cells that just grow and become inflamed and inflammatory. So would you like to talk a little bit about this? I just find this like so fascinating. Yes. So, so when insulin is elevated and there is sufficient calories available, and that doesn't mean the person has to be necessarily in, you know, a so-called excess of calories. So I'm, I'm a little cool when it comes to speaking about how important calories are. I think they matter, but they, they are not, they're given too much attention. So, and I think part of that attention needs to be divided between calories and insulin. So when insulin is elevated, it will signal fat cells to store energy. And so this would be a someone who's gaining fat mass. Now, a body can gain fat mass through two mechanisms, one being much more common than the other, and, and that would be the first one that I'll mention. So when, when insulin is elevated and there's sufficient calories that the body is storing fat, most commonly, you will store fat through what's called hypertrophic fat cell growth. And so that's where, like you said, that's when the person's number of fat cells is set. It doesn't change. 
And as the insulin is telling it to store more energy as fat, that means each individual fat cell must carry a, a greater burden. And so the individual fat cells begin to grow. That is hypertrophy. So we have hypertrophic fat growth. And again, that is the most common. Most people, once they've finished puberty, so late teens for girls and early 20s for boys, they will have a set number of fat cells. They're done. Now, fat cells can die. They have a lifespan of about 10 years, and they can be replaced. But generally, the number of fat cells is essentially fixed. Of course, nothing is ever truly fixed in the human body. It's constantly dynamic. But generally, they're done. They're not going to expand their fat cell number. And that is why most people, if their insulin is elevated over time and they're sufficient calories, they will get fat through hypertrophic fat growth. And then in, in, in contrast, or alternatively, some people genetically, and, and partly through perhaps foods they eat, so there could be a dietary component to this, they will get fat through a mechanism called hyperplasia or hyperplastic fat growth. And that is when they maintain the ability to make new fat cells all the time. And this would be a fat cell or fat cells that start to get a little big because insulin is stimulating their growth and because they're sufficient calories. And then right before they get too big, they will recruit new fat cells. So they have new fat cells that kind of move into the neighborhood and they can start sharing some of this energetic burden. So basically, it's like the hyperplastic fat cells always have more room. They always have vacancy, whereas the hypertrophic fat cells are full. There's no vacancy. They cannot handle any more fat to store. Now, what starts to happen then over time is that the hypertrophic fat cells reach a maximum dimension. They're essentially as big as they can get. And yet, if insulin continues to be elevated, there's no choice but the fat cell to con they continue to get that signal to grow. But of course, it cannot grow anymore. The fat cell, out of, out of really self-survival, self-interest, starts to downgrade its sensitivity to insulin. It's basically saying, insulin, you want me to continue to grow. I cannot. I'm as big as I can get. So I'm not listening to you anymore. And, and now that fat cell starts leaking fat. It starts breaking down fat when it shouldn't. It shouldn't be breaking down fat. It still can take fat in because insulin doesn't really drive that process anyway. So fat can still come in, but, but now insulin can't stop it from breaking fat down. And so you have a fat cell. It stays big, unfortunately. It does not start to shrink, but it starts to break down its fat. And that's why you have this big increase in free fatty acids because the, the fat cell is no longer listening to insulin in that regard. Also, at the same time, you mentioned inflammation. As these fat cells are getting so big, they run the risk of getting too far from capillaries, from blood flow. And every cell, of course, must have access to blood to survive. They need the blood to exchange gases like carbon dioxide and oxygen, as well as to just exchange like metabolites and other molecules. And so as the fat cells are getting so big, they're getting too far from capillaries, and so they will release, you know, this may be part of the reason, they will release pro-inflammatory proteins, some of which help to stimulate the growth of new blood vessels. And so these two, two situations, these two products of the hypertrophic fat cell, namely the leaking of the free fatty acids and the pro-inflammatory cytokines, are kind of the fat cell's effort to survive. Like every cell, it's determined to survive even in the midst of this onslaught of, of insulin and energy. But in the process, unfortunately, releasing the free fatty acids and the pro-inflammatory cytokines, that's kind of the way 
not kind of, that's likely the mechanism whereby the hypertrophic fat cell starts spreading its insulin resistance through the body to the brain, to the muscles, the liver, the pancreas, and, and the blood vessels, and, and so on. Now, in contrast, again, the hyperplastic fat cells, they can continue to store more fat. And so they can continue to respond to insulin because they don't ever sense the crisis that the, that the hypertrophic fat cells, the individual cells are small, they can continue to store more energy. And once they start to get far from blood or, or, or too big, they just ha- recruit new fat cells. And so they maintain insulin sensitivity. And interestingly, hyperplastic fat growth, it kind of creates this paradoxical situation where the person can become morbidly obese. I mean, I, I mean, these are the kinds of people that are four or 500 pounds where the average person simply could never get that big. The average person cannot get that fat. But these are people who can, and they maintain a high degree of insulin sensitivity paradoxically. And that, that's what I meant by a paradox, where they are morbidly obese, have a fantastic amount of fat tissue, and yet they maintain insulin sensitivity. They may not be healthy in other ways, but their glucose will probably be normal. Their blood pressure could be close to normal. And then in the end, they're surprisingly healthy, healthier than you'd think. In contrast, the average person who's going th- growing their fat through hypertrophic fat, they reach a limit. Their body in that, is that point where the fat cells become insulin resistant. Typically, at that point, they won't get fatter. Well, although they may start to store their fat ectopically, now they start storing more fat in their liver or even more in their muscle. And, and so, I mean, the body, if insulin is elevated, the body is determined to store energy. It's just at that point, they generally reach a level beyond which they won't gain weight. So that's the differences between hypertrophic and hyperplastic fat growth, and even some insight into why the hypertrophic fat cells become insulin resistant. And of course, a why question is kind of the philosophy of physiology. And maybe someone would say, well, that has no place in hard sciences. You know, I like to joke with my students that when we ask a why question, like why do the hypertrophic fat cells become insulin resistant, I presented the idea that it's their efforts to survive. But I don't really know that. I kind of joke that that's that's a divine question. You know, God only knows why the cell acts the way it does. We don't know why it, the system was designed that way. We can only speculate. That's my speculation. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. 
I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels. And I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD. And historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours and it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they 
look pretty awesome with my outfits, not gonna lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you wanna boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep and or optimize your partying, you need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. Well, actually, my question I had is a why question. I love them. Okay, good. Do you have any thoughts about why evolutionarily, like some people would have a tendency towards hypertrophy and others towards the hyperplastic? Like, is there a situation where there's a benefit to one versus the other? Yeah, yeah, I do. And so this is, this is again, a matter of speculation, which is fun. Frankly, I, I could imagine that part of the difference would be where people's ancestors lived namely cold climates or warm climates in a cold climate there's something you know survival there's some survival with regards to being able to store fat especially in the subcutaneous space or the space under the skin in order to preserve body heat it, it becomes a form of insulation in, in in contrast if someone is living on the equator for millennia you know it's theoretically or, or or longer you know theoretically that is a person who would ha- would have no need of insulation and perhaps would have a limited capacity for fat growth. And I, I say this is all much, much speculation, of course, but we know that there are certain ethnicities who suffer from fat mass sooner than other ethnicities. And so, for example, I did my, my postdoctoral fellowship in Singapore, of all places, because of that government's high interest in some of the ethnic disparity with regards to diabetes. So, for example... If you take someone of, let's say, Malaysian ethnicity, you know, which is sort of the, the, the native ethnicity to that part of the world, to the Southeast Asia, uh, if you take, take that kind of almost sort of a version of like Pacific Islander, which actually I also could use here. It just wasn't as relevant, of course, to, to Singapore. But take someone of, say, like a Pacific Island equatorial descent and compare them to someone who has, say, Northern European descent, like, like some of my ancestors, my kind of Scotch-Irish mix of Scandinavian, you know, very north climate, very used to a northern climate, very cold, of course, at certain times of the year. Not only would they have needed more fat during the winter for warmth, but also more fat to survive on during the winter when food was scarce, as opposed to an equatorial ethnicity, 
if you will, if I can say that, where food is always abundant and, and the temperature is never cold. There's simply not a real reason to store more fat. And, and we start to see some of this play out where at very at much, so if you take a Northern European ethnicity, compare that with, say, a Pacific Islander or kind of Southeast Asian ethnicity, and they start gaining fat at the same rate, the Pacific Islander or Southeast Asian ethnicity will start to suffer from that much, much sooner than the Northern European. So they will be moderately overweight. And now, this, say, the Southeast Asian will now start to have elevated glucose. They will have hypertension. They're going to be on some medications for those and more. Whereas the Northern European, they're moderately overweight and they're perfectly fine. They, they don't have any deficits, so to speak, with regards to their health. So it, it could, that might be part of the reason why, why some people, why different ethnicities are more inclined to disease. And in fact, this is sufficiently real that there is a different set of BMI scales that are used for different ethnicities. And for example, Southeast Asian ethnicities have a bit more of a, of a rigorous scale where with, with say, Caucasian ethnicity you know, overweight doesn't start until 25 and obesity doesn't start until a BMI of 30. And BMI is just, of course, you know, and your listeners, I'm sure too, just a function of height and weight. So it's not great. But with Southeast Asian ethnicities and Asian ethnicities in general, it's, it's, it's shifted down like five points where overweight is like 20 and obese is considered 25 or something like that. I'm sure I'm not exactly right, but it's a different scale to more accurately reflect the risk of, of excess body weight across, you know, distinct ethnicities. Oh, I did not know that. So like with the BMI scale, I don't know how many different populations adjust it, but like really Arctic populations with the BMI scale be probably should be higher, like the number is higher. Yeah, that's right. Now it doesn't always, it doesn't play out quite like I described. For example, I think like African ethnicity actually follows more closely to that Northern European. I think I, I probably ought to be more familiar with this. So my, I think someone who's listening to this could probably very likely start poking holes in some of what I described. And so I'd want, I would want to be clear. I'm speculating on some of this, but, but you know, it's a why question. There's a lot of philosophy involved or, or wondering, and, and that's some of my wondering. I, I suspect it has something to do with climate and seasonal access to food or not. And, and it's interesting also to note the differences, of course, in pigment, where the Northern European, in getting relatively little sunlight, because of such a fair pinkish pigment, is able to make a lot of vitamin D very quickly, as opposed to someone who, is, who evolved at the equator, who's exposed to sunlight all the time, it was a survival mechanism to have a darker pigment and, and thus survive in that constant sunlight, but also now need more vitamin D. And in fact, not to change the topic, I actually... I believe that's necessary to appreciate for us to appreciate the viral concerns kind of taking over the world at the moment and the ethnic disparities there. There's something incredibly relevant about vitamin D. And, and, and I think that to, to acknowledge the role for vitamin D in, in optimal immune health, we really need to scrutinize or appreciate the role of ethnicity as well. Speaking to that, what do you think about the differences between vitamin D from the sun and then based on your skin type compared to the natural form that might be in things like fish compared to like supplemental vitamin D. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, a little, I, I'm certainly not a vitamin D expert, but of, of course I'm a huge fan of, of natural vitamin D 
including that which we make from exposure to the sun, which is based on cholesterol, another reason that cholesterol is an absolutely essential molecule for animal life. So, you know, in the sun, we'll make vitamin D from cholesterol. And then alternatively, we can eat it in foods from animal sourced foods. But I'm also, I'm I'm extremely favorable. I'm not favorable with regards to most supplements, but vitamin D3 is one that I'm absolutely an advocate of. I do think people should take vitamin D3 and, and, and K2 supplements. Those two work well together now more than ever with regards to, to COVID and, and especially a clinical study, which, which confirmed that vitamin D therapy is extremely useful to, to COVID immunity. I've been supplementing with vitamin D for, for quite a while. And I used to live in California, so I had better, I was better with my vitamin D levels there, but now I'm in Atlanta and I've been able to raise my vitamin D blood with supplements pretty well. But then I also will do small tanning bed exposure during the winter for all going for like a minute to the UVB only <laughs> raise. Yeah. Yeah. And given your fair complexion, that that's, you can do that. You can get away. I, I mean, you, you are able to make a lot of vitamin D very quickly. And I think that, I think that really matters where people are talking about how COVID, you know, appears to really have a greater relevance in, in people of color. Where, and I, I do think that's partly a result of our kind of isolated existence nowadays, where we just aren't, especially nowadays, where if we're on lockdown, you can't go outside. And, and I think the little bit of sunlight that you can get, if you're very fair complected, well, then that might be enough for you to, to get adequate vitamin D. But if you have a darker complexion, then, then you, you need more time in the sun to do that. I mean, it's, it's an advantage to have that darker complexion, of course. If you're in the sun all the time, I mean, for me, I will sunburn painfully in, in depending on the day, like within 10 minutes, I'm so fair. It's such a curse. But the flip side is I'm in the sun for one minute and I got my dose of vitamin D for the day. And, and so I do think that it's, it's part of the reason we do see some disparity across ethnicities with how vicious COVID-19 can be. All the more reason in my mind, well, one, to get outside as much as possible but also to, to focus on vitamin D3 in particular. And again, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty lukewarm on, on most supplements, but that is one I very much advocate. And so anyone listening to this, if, if they have a darker complexion, then, then all the more reason, really get, get some vitamin D3. And I would recommend that it be coupled with K2, but you know, get it today and start taking it and you'll do yourself a favor. Going back to, because I want to touch on one more thing that you were talking about with the fat cells and talking about fat storage in visceral fat versus subcutaneous fat. So is the visceral fat more likely to be that hypertrophy type? And the reason I asked that is because you talked about a study in the book where when they took obese mice and took their visceral fat and gave it to lean mice, the mice became insulin resistant. But when they took the subcutaneous fat from obese mice and put it in lean mice, they did not become insulin resistant. Is it because the fat and visceral fat just has more, like talking about it as like an endocrine system has more inflammatory markers or why is visceral fat so bad? Yeah. Yeah. Visceral fat appears to become more occupied by immune cells like macrophages than subcutaneous fat it does. Now, now that in and of itself is not inherently bad. Macrophages are, are everywhere. We have macrophages in the brain, in the liver, in the muscles, in, in the bones. 
we call them different things in different cells, partly because it wasn't until later that we realized that, that it was, in fact, all the same macrophage. We didn't know. And so we called them, we called them you know, osteoclasts in the bone, and we called them Kufr cells in the liver, not realizing at the time that, oh, wait, they're just all macrophages. Osteoclasts are macrophages? Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. So we have, yeah, they're everywhere. And we just called them different things because they have kind of slightly different actions depending on where they are. But a theme of them is immunity and inflammation. And that's not a bad process itself. Of course, inflammation is essential to healing and, and recovery, but it's just when we have too much of it. And in the case of the visceral adipose, it becomes more occupied by macrophages more readily than subcutaneous fat does. And that might be, once again, on purpose where perhaps the visceral fat, if it starts to get too big, you could see the problem where it would start to physically compress tissues. It would physically compress the, the intestines. It would physically compress the kidneys, you know, b- blocking blood flow. So the, the body very much has an interest in keeping visceral adipose in check. And perhaps the macrophages are there to help clear out some of that fat. And they would do so perfectly well in a case of a modest amount of, of visceral fat if they needed to be there at all. But the problem is if the person is continuing to develop subcutaneous fat, the macrophages themselves start to become loaded with that fat and they become what's called foam cells. We call them foam cells because if you actually look at them under a microscope, they look like they have a bunch of little bubbles. Yeah, they look bubbly, but it's actually just little pools of of lipid or pools of fat. And so these foam cells are very pro-inflammatory, releasing a broad spectrum of pro-inflammatory cytokines thereby causing inflammation in the body. And inflammation is one of the fundamental causes of insulin resistance. And for listeners, just to paint a better picture, so the visceral fat is, and like we said, it's the fat around internal around the organs and the subcutaneous is what you can pinch. It's like under your skin. Yep, the pinch and the jiggle, which is good. I would, I would actually say all fat is good. I'm a great defender of fat, frankly. And if I ever write another book, I don't know that I will. The first one was so exhausting. But if I ever write another one, it will be about fat, just help people understand it. But with subcutaneous fat especially, it plays an essential role in human function, even including fertility. The reason a little girl, for example, or, or a woman, if she becomes infertile or stops ovulating because she gets too thin, it's because the lack of fat and you and it's it's fat hormones that actually allow the brain to drive fertility. And the woman is more susceptible to this than the man, simply because the woman really bears the metabolic burden of childbirth. You know, she, of course, grows the baby and then nurses, feeds the baby. So she bears the metabolic burden. So, so a man can get phenomenally lean and maintain fertility. Uh, of course, as a woman gets increasingly lean, then her fertility starts to become at risk because she needs more of a signal from her fat in order to allow her brain to promote fertility. And that signal is leptin, and that's my point. Subcutaneous fat makes more leptin than visceral fat does. Okay, gotcha. And also to that point, because you talk about in the book, ceramides. Ceramides, yeah, yeah. I actually just recently had Joel Green. Do you know Joel Green? I don't. That sounds familiar. He wrote a book called The Immunity Code, and it's it's all about the role of macrophages and inflammation and body weight and stuff like that. He talks a lot about like 4-HNE, for example. So that was the first time I was reading about that. So then I was excited to read it in your book. Yeah. So what are, wait, what is it? Ceramides? Ceramides? Ceramides. And what determines when fat 
becomes bad fat. Yeah, yeah, that's right. What, what flips the switch from good to bad? So in this case, yeah, ceramides are, are part of what likely, not likely, definitely, ceramides make a cell insulin resistant. Now, I, I say I was kind of hedging that a little bit just because I wouldn't want someone to think I'm suggesting it's the only signal that can make a cell insulin resistant. No, I'm not saying that. But for a fact, it does. I know that for absolute certain, having, having done these experiments myself. So ceramides are a type of fat. And, and when I say type of fat, it's because a cell will have, there are literally like thousands, thousands of different types of fat within every single cell in the body. And ceramides itself is one class of an enormous class of fats, which, which itself encompasses another thousands of types of fats. So some of these ceramides, which, would be, which are made in a cell, in result, as a result of inflammation, but we, but actually, let me back up. They're essential. A cell has ceramides because you need ceramides for survival. If you have, say, an animal model, an animal like a rodent, a genetically modified mouse, and you have blocked those little embryos in, in mama mouse from making ceramides, those babies will be born, but they will not, they will die. So blocking ceramides is incompatible with survival. You have to have them. But as happens so often, in, in the body and in the intricacies of cell biology, you must have something, but you must have it at the proper, proper levels. Insulin is no exception. You, know, you need insulin, but you don't want too much. You need ceramides, but once again, you don't want too much. So if a cell is accumulating ceramides, ceramides becomes, uh, it begins to directly antagonize what insulin's trying to do. So when insulin binds on a cell, it will initiate a series of events. A, a biochemical cascade or, or a chemical pathway. There will be a series of proteins that basically start acting on each other in a, in a sequence. Ceramides will get in the way of that. It will stop some of these proteins in the cell from passing that signal along, basically, in this kind of game of telegraph. Ceramides gets in the way of that and stops the signal, thus preventing the cell from responding to insulin as it would normally. So that, that is the process whereby ceramides will cause insulin resistance. It's basically a direct interruption of the insulin signal. Are they the fat cell protecting itself in a way? Yes, that's a good question. Yeah, thanks. So, yes, yeah, so ceramides will be made as a result of, of inflammation, like some of those same inflammatory signals we spoke about earlier, those cytokines. They will stimulate the synthesis of ceramides. Also, chronically elevated insulin will stimulate ceramide production. But yes, if ceramides are accumulating in a fat cell, they will block the fat cell from being able to create new fat cells and force the fat cell to grow through hypertrophy. And you'd mentioned 4-HNE, which is a metabolite of linoleic acid, the omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid. That also plays into this same process at the fat cell, preventing hyperplasia and forcing strict hypertrophy. Here's a question I had. Because you talk in the book about how fat cells become insulin resistant first, muscle is also one of the first things to become insulin resistant. Why, in the case of insulin resistance, do fat cells? I mean, I know there might not be quote listening to insulin, but we get fatter with insulin resistance. But with muscles, we lose the muscle. It's like the opposite. Yeah, yeah, right. So the muscle. It doesn't respond to insulin, of course, the same way that fat cells do, being a diff very different cell with very different, a very different purpose in the body. Insulin protects muscle protein. It's not, it doesn't appear to be essential in, in, 
Well, a, a basal amount of insulin would certainly be essential for the muscle to make any protein at all. But spiking your insulin doesn't really appear to be necessary in facilitating muscle growth. So in, I think sometimes people over they exaggerate insulin's role as an anabolic hormone at the muscle. It doesn't appear to stimulate any greater muscle growth when it's elevated. But what it does do is protect the muscle protein. So it's anti-catabolic. As much as we could say it's anabolic, it's anti-catabolic. But as the muscle becomes insulin resistant, insulin's ability to defend muscle protein becomes compromised. And now the muscle, the, the proteolytic processes, the catabolic process, processes start to dominate as insulin's kind of losing that tug of war. And so the catabolic starts to win over the anabolic signals because insulin simply can't do it anymore. Now, there are other anabolic signals at the muscle, just for full disclosure, like growth hormone, for example. But insulin is one of those signals that helps the muscle defend its protein. And as the muscle becomes insulin resistant, then it loses that defender. And of course, the muscle never, not of course, someone wouldn't necessarily know this, it never becomes growth hormone resistant. So there are other signals that are still trying to defend the muscle. But the loss of insulin is, is pretty fundamental. And that's why with insulin resistance, a person can start to develop sarcopenia or muscle wasting. And unfortunately, that starts to feed on itself in a way, compounding the problem. Because if you start losing muscle mass, you start losing the main consumer of glucose. After a meal, muscle consumes up to 80% of glucose. And as the muscles become insulin resistant, it can lose that effect by half. So now you have all this excess glucose that couldn't go into the muscle and has no place to go. And now it stays in the blood, keeping glucose high, but also in the process keeping insulin high. And as insulin stays high, it continues to actually elicit or, or cause insulin resistance. One of the other causes of insulin resistance, I'd mentioned inflammation a moment ago, is chronically elevated insulin. Too much insulin causes cells to become resistant to the insulin. You said 80% of the glucose after a meal into muscles? Yep, that's right. So this is a huge question I've had for so long. I'm trying to get an understanding of this. So glucose and glycogen and muscles and the liver and the potential storage and usage capacity of muscles versus the liver. Let's say that there is room in our muscles and our liver. Does the liver always fill first and then the muscles? Does it not matter? That's a great question. Yeah. So in the context of stored glucose, and that's of course called glycogen, which you said, muscles are very greedy and the liver is very giving. And so, so the muscle can store, depending on the person, of course, and their amount of muscle, a normal sized individual will store, you know, around 12 to 1400 or so calories as, as glycogen in muscle. And then there will be anywhere from like four to 600 or so calories stored as glycogen in the liver. So the muscle will store more. And that's just because there's so much more muscle. We have, you know, several times orders of magnitude, probably an order of magnitude, probably more muscle than we do liver on an average sized person. So it stands to reason that the muscles have a greater overall capacity. The muscles, like I said, are very greedy though. And that has two effects. One, it means that the muscle never shares its glycogen with the rest of the body. It will only use it, it will use it itself. So if a muscle has stored glycogen, it is staying in that muscle and when the muscle breaks down that glycogen, it is simply to make fuel for that individual muscle cell. It will never release it into the, into the bloodstream. In contrast, 
the liver glycogen is meant to be actually shared with the body to, to give energy to other cells in the body, like, like the brain or the muscle. So the liver doesn't use its own glycogen, it gives it up. So that's what I meant earlier there with regards to the liver being more giving. But that also reflects in the rate at which the tissue will replenish those, those glycogen depots and how reluctant the glycogen depots are to run out. If you and I were to start fasting now for 24 hours, we would run out of liver glycogen because the liver will have given it all up by then. Our muscle glycogen would actually be probably normal. The muscle will use it very sparingly. And even if, it does, even if we went and exercised, it will fill itself back up on glucose coming from the liver. So the liver, the muscle will fill back up with glycogen much, much faster. And in fact, it's virtually impossible, except with extreme exercise, to run out of muscle glycogen. You can, however, very readily run out of liver glycogen just with a, you know, a 12, 16-hour fast, and you'll be out. And in fact, that's, that's the point at which the body also starts making more ketones, and the person becomes, they get into ketosis. That is kind of elegantly matched, where right around the time the liver is running out of glycogen, the liver has also started producing glucose. And that's almost, that's the way of the liver, as it runs out of one nutrient, to provide the other for the brain. And of course, during fasting, the brain will shift to using, you know, 75, 80% of all of its energy from, from ketones. It's actually to, in a way, a reflection of the fact that the liver has run out of glucose and the liver is saying, look, I'm running out of this. And so I'll give you something else, you know, kind of the ultimate, the ultimate kind of giving organ. And that's why in the book, I actually joke about this. In, in Persian cultures, a term of endearment is to call someone their, your golden liver. You know, like if I were talking to my wife and I, I wouldn't say my sweetheart, the heart is actually, it's muscle. It's very selfish. You know, I would say my golden liver, you know, that's a term of endearment. And I think there's something a little more, well, beautiful about that because the liver is, you know, is really so generous with regards to how it interacts with the body. I'm dying to know your thoughts on, do you think liver glycogen depletion is necessary to enter the ketogenic state or to start ketosis. Some people say that ketosis is not dependent on liver glycogen stores. You know, that's a good question. And I think anyone saying this is speculating because I've never seen a study that can confirm one way or the other. And in fact, I saw one recently, actually. And they confirmed? So it was in rats. I can send it to you, but I found it. It was kind of like you're talking at the beginning when you find the study and you're like, or is, you know, you're it and you feel like you're in like a little like dark cave reading this magical study. Yeah, that's awesome. So I, I don't believe I don't believe it's necessary for the record because ketogenesis is not a function of glycogen. It is a function of insulin, frankly. And so those, but but those are very related. So it's in a way I would say, well, we're sort of splitting hairs. I think the closest I'd found, although I'd love to see that animal study, was the guy who did a lot of starvation work, and George Cahill is his name. And, and there was just some sort of some speculation in a way that, that these, I, I would say this, it is definitely not causal. The liver running out of glycogen definitely does not cause the, keto, the increased ketogenesis. It's probably coincidental. This is fascinating. That's huge what you were saying about ketosis not being dependent on glycogen, but it's about insulin. The study of the rats, it was looking at time to ketosis and rats fed different diets and the liver glycogen 
like how that related to the entry and, and the rats on the low carb diet. I, I, it was a while since I read it, so I can, I have to look at it again, but the rats on the like low carb diets, their glycogen, I don't think their glycogen really affected when they entered and like their glycogen didn't really change that much based on different levels of ketosis. It was fascinating. Yeah. Well, in animals, rodents are so, they're so tricky when it comes to ketosis. We're actually battling some, some of that right now. We're doing a brain ketone study and, and it's so tricky to anticipate the rate at which the animals are getting into ketosis and how you have to manipulate the diet in such bizarre ways. It's so different from humans. Nevertheless, that I think there's value in that finding, and I'm glad to hear it. I, I would again just say glycogen isn't going to be causal or necessary for, for ketogenesis. And one more liver glycogen question. This is one of my obsessions. What do you think about liver glycogen storage potential? Are you familiar with the people in the Ray Pete world? No, not at all. He's a, what is he? He has letters after his name, but <laughs> he does a lot of research and um, there's a whole like community, but his whole tenants are, he's very much a fan of actually like glycogen fueled body rather than fueling primarily on fatty acids. And he talks about the stress response and thyroid and all this stuff, but on oh, PUFA depletion is like one of his big things. But a lot of the people there talk about building up your glycogen storage potential. Like, do you think that, and this actually ties into a question we can maybe get to, which is like physiological insulin resistance versus glucose intolerance versus low carb. But do you think there is a benefit or like if you're running on carbs more as your preferred source of quote fuel, like, do you get better at processing them? Do you get better glycogen stores? Do you get better flexibility with that compared to if you're in like a low carb state, do you lose your glycogen storage potential? And then I kind of have a follow-up question, like I said, about physiological insulin resistance. But. Yeah, that, that is interesting. So I would say if you have more mitochondria and, and you're training, I guess with, I don't know what the training regimen would have to be, but you're training in such a way to rely more on oxidative glycolysis, which can produce more energy than, than anaerobic glycolysis, then you could more, you could be more more effective or more efficient with your use of glucose. In other words, getting more bang for your buck. So there's probably a way you can, you can exercise to help train that. And, and that, might, that might yield some improved glucose use. However, the idea of pushing the body to store significantly more glycogen than it would normally store, I would say that is, I mean, we know that you can glycogen load if you take all the glucose in the average person's body, it's enough for about 2000 calories. And let's say, let's say you can expand your glycogen storage significantly. And I know you can a little with training, but let's say, let's just say ridiculously, you got another thousand calories, which I, I think would be impossible. In fact, that would have to be impossible because the water weight that would come with that, you would, you would gain, you'd be so much heavier because glycogen, that's the problem with glycogen it is a very heavy molecule because of its water demand. And so I would say with, mind you, I am speculating, I bet it's impossible to even gain 50% more glycogen because your body mass would climb so significantly, like probably 20 or 30 pounds. But I, I'm just kind of throwing these numbers up on the wall at the moment. But, uh, but glycogen is a very heavy molecule because of the water load that comes with it. So I would say there, 
there's a very limited amount of limited degree of expanding your glycogen. Not that it can't happen. It absolutely can. But if you are training in a way to use energy and to not have to, like if your philosophy is I'm going to more efficiently use glucose and store more glucose, then you're, you're, you're going about it the wrong way. Because if, if you are trying to use an energy source more efficiently and not only use it more, I mean, fat burning, for example, I'll get to my point, yields significantly more energy than any form of glucose burning by a lot. And fat storage is significantly more efficient than glucose storage. Now, that's a problem in some people, of course. They're efficiently storing energy. That means they're gaining weight so easily, gaining fat. But even in the context of athletics, most certainly in the context of endurance exercise, if you can improve your ability to burn fat at ever higher intensities, this fat adaptation, I would say that's the ideal strategy. Uh, truly, I mean this with all due respect to that, to that, in, that scientist. And I do mean that. I, I really suspect this person has put a lot of time and thought into that. And so I'm giving, I'm hoping that there's a, a common ground here that where I might be misunderstanding the purpose, but if the purpose is to efficiently use energy and store energy efficiently, well, then fat does that already. And then you're simply focusing on the wrong macronutrient. All the more reason to become fat adapted because you can store orders of magnitude 10 or more often 100 times more energy as fat. You, even the lean individual has plenty of fat stored. No need to try to glycogen load and go through all that discomfort, which is uncomfortable, and only to run out of the energy anyway partway through a marathon where you have to then be including more glucose. You have to start taking more in. You don't have enough stored if you're relying predominantly on glucose. If, in contrast, you've trained your body to rely at high intensities on fat, you don't need to take in any fat. You have plenty to go. And, and so you can avoid some of that GI discomfort that comes from having to ingest glucose in the midst of an event. You don't have to ingest any. You just drink salt and water and you're, you're good to go. So, yeah, I, I'm sure there's some nuance here that I don't quite understand. But I, I will challenge that thought. I will challenge that, that paradigm if I understand it correctly. And just say, if the paradigm exists as one that is attempting to use and store energy more efficiently, then that's silly. There's already one that does it much, much better. You just need to train the body to use that fat, continue to use it efficiently at ever higher intensities. And that can happen through just the process of fat, of you know, so-called fat adaptation. Gotcha. I actually found his work because I was Googling, because he also is very much into certain types of foods. So like I said, like low PUFA, high fish. Mm -hmm. Which I totally agree with. And he's actually a huge fan of fruit. He's not a huge fan of vegetables for, because of gut issues. But the reason I found it is because I was Googling like the foods that I was eating. And I was like, what is this weird combination of foods that I'm eating? And that's how I found his work. But what I was doing for the longest time, and I wish back then I had all the tools that I have now, like my CGM and my like Lumen, which is a, uses indirect telemetry and my biosense and like all these different measures. Cause I'm I'm dying to know, because for the longest time I was doing a diet where I was doing 24-hour fasting every, well, can't be 24 hours because then you wouldn't be eating, but 22-ish hours fasting every day and eating for like two hours. But I was eating super high carb in the form of fruit, super high protein, low fat. But when I would test my blood sugar, it would always be low in the fast. When I would test ketones, it was usually negative. And I just wonder, like, what was I running on? Like, was I running on glycogen all day and then refilling every night? <laughs> Well, glucose, yeah, I would say 
that is that to me is not a healthy diet, Melanie. <laughs> just for the record, <laughs> uh, and but I don't know how you were feeling, and I and I don't I don't want to upset you, you know, if, if you loved it. So uh, you would have to have been running on on glucose and in any amount of fructose that was converting to fat, and and when you'd eat in excess, you'd be able to store some fat for later use because of course the liver is very good at converting fructose into fat. But I I do I, I confess I, I am I'm opposed to that style of eating just because I. I don't like in you you're able to do it you're you're healthy I think in if we had been talking about an overweight diabetic who's focusing on fruit I consider that not good I don't think that's a prudent strategy but also I can't help but think there's there's just something wrong when the diet is based almost wholly on foods that in fact are not essential to humans and and it is it is a reality albeit a little maybe indelicate to say or perhaps certainly not diplomatic there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate when it comes to humans. We, we do not have a biological need for literally any type of carbohydrate. None. Zero. There are essential fats and there are essential amino acids. There is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. Now, I'm not declaring war on carbohydrates. That's not my intention. But I, I do think that that, it, that ought to, in a way, form the way we eat. That ought to be part of how we decide what to eat, we certainly can include plants, uh, carbohydrates for the sake of enjoyment. I think that's very relevant. But fats and proteins are what we, our bodies truly need. They are essential. And so in my philosophy is focus on those two and then let the carbohydrates sort of be sprinkled in the diet. And moreover, independent of what we need to eat, I, like espouse, I espouse that perspective also because much of my research has concluded that an ideal life is one that is spent not spiking insulin all the time. That is a healthy, lean life. And, and fat and protein have minimal effects, little or no effect on insulin, whereas carbohydrates, of course, have a significant effect on insulin. So altogether, that kind of wrapping those ideas up, my sort of philosophy on food or my pillars is control carbohydrates, not to say don't eat them at all, but be smart about them prioritize protein, fill with fat, and then intermittent fast. I do think there's a lot of power in fasting. So, sorry, I went a little off topic. I, I think a diet, a diet that is so, so wholly based on, on fruits, I do not think that's ideal. One quick question about there being no essential carbohydrate. What about, I know it's not, it's glucose, it's not a carbohydrate. Yeah, yeah, so blood glucose Glucose is essential. Sorry, I cut you off though. That's such a common point of confusion where, where I, I did, you know, very clearly, you know, my, my expression was that dietary carbohydrates are not essential. That is not to be conflated with the idea that glucose isn't essential. No, glucose is absolutely essential. And that is why the liver is so good at making it. That ultimate, that ultimate giver, that ultimate sort of generous organ, it makes all the glucose a body needs. And the tissues that need it, like for example, red blood cells, red blood cells are 100% dependent on glucose. Brain cells are not, and I don't think any other cell is actually. I think every other cell is a mix of what it can burn. Red blood cells are unique. They have an exclusive dependency on, on glucose. And, and so thank heavens that the liver makes all we need. And I mean that. So I'm not saying glucose isn't essential to survival. It is. And, and thank heavens, the body has a way of making it, which is why it's not essential. When it comes to those specific fats and those specific amino acids, 
They are essential because the body cannot make them. And so we must eat them. Glucose is essential, but it's not essential in the diet because the body is able to make it. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I'm so alert by fruit is because it seems to have less of an effect on insulin. And so it seems like a way to get a, a higher carb load without the potential issues of all the excess insulin. So like fat generation, just from like a hypothetical, like philosophical perspective. So like fat created from carbs, if fat is great and essential, like is fat created from carbs? How is that a problem? Because I know most people to do that, it's going to be probably in a high insulin inflammatory state. So I can see how that's a problem. But if it's not in that context, is there a problem? That's a great question. No, no. But I would say that the carbs would never turn into the essential fats. Like just to clarify, for me saying that there are essential fats in the diet, those are fats that carbs could never turn into. You know, we have to eat those as fats from, you know, from, from fish, for example, or in, indeed any animal source, literally any animal source fats will give those essential fats and essential amino acids, uh, incidentally. So no, it's not an inherent problem that carbohydrates can be made into fat. Not, not at all. In fact, that appears to be necessary for when, when, we're, when we're growing new fat cells, it's that glucose-derived fat that, or glucose-converted to fat, lipogenesis, that appears to kind of start the, the lipid accumulation within a, a smaller fat cell. But the problem only would come if we're putting a burden on the liver through a lot of fructose. Now, I don't know that you could eat enough fruit to drive that problem in the liver. It would really be a matter of drinking the fruit you know, drinking the, the pure kind of adulterated fructose, that would be problematic. So no, there's nothing inherently wrong in carbohydrate making fat. And I, would, I wouldn't want to say that at all. And so I won't. Uh, but where the, the type of carbohydrate we eat does actually affect where we store fat. There was a study in humans that had them drink isocaloric drinks of, of pure glucose or pure fructose. They both gained a certain amount of fat the glucose drinkers gained it relatively more in the subcutaneous and the fructose drinkers gained it relatively more in the visceral space, very likely because it was the liver making all of it when it comes to the fructose-induced fat production. So no, there's nothing inherently bad about carbohydrates being sufficiently ingested to, to promote fat storage. In fact, evolutionarily, that would have been a good thing. You know, anything we can get our hands on, Let's, let's try to get what we can to store energy for later use, and fat would be the optimal way of doing that. But it doesn't change. I wouldn't then use that to change my earlier comment. There are essential fats in the diet, but there's still no, nothing essential about a carbohydrate. But again, I'm not, I wouldn't want anyone to listen to this and think, oh, well, Ben thinks we should all be carnivore. Not at all. I'm not at all saying that. Not, not even a little am I saying that. But I, I guess I'm just saying that to state to me, that would be a, a basis to scrutinize the diet and say, why am I getting almost every, all of my food from the one macronutrient that's not essential? Maybe I should focus more on the essential ones first and then let this third non-essential macronutrient just sort of fill the gaps, so to speak. Hi, friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. 
I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality, they're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit, that's what I have, and it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving, it's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits The longest lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines, One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. 
I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full-spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today, we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside, and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus, or SCN, in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an near-infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near-infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Yeah. I just want to say thank you so much for engaging in this conversation with me. And the reason I'm asking so many questions is because I'm just so fascinated, especially with the whole insulin issue that there are people in two seemingly completely polar opposite camps, you know, like the, the super low carb, you know, carnivore, that whole world for insulin issues. And then on the flip side, we have people like the high carb, low fat, plant-based. I've had Cyrus and Robbie who wrote Mastering Diabetes on the show. And I just so respect you and your work and your book was amazing. So I just thank you for listening to my questions. Oh, I love them. I love them. Yes, please. Please. This has been a delightful conversation. I would want anyone to know much of my perspective on nutrition is is seen through the lens of metabolic disease like insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. And, and while my, my perspectives, I never mean for them to seem inflammatory, I, I base them just completely on 
human clinical studies where if you take a type 2 diabetic and put them on a low-carb diet or a low-fat diet, never, never once in a human study will the lo- has the low-fat diet outperformed the low-carb diet. And in contrast, there have been dozens of studies where the low-carb diet has outperformed the low-fat diet. And, and that I use that, I state this very, very deliberately and very cautiously, uh, and I wouldn't say it unless I was sort of mentally citing these dozens of studies. If, if we're talking about someone who is, has elevated glucose, to me, it's, it's common sense, even if we overlooked the data, to say, well, if you're having trouble, if the glucose is accumulating in your blood, maybe I'll put less in your blood for a time and, and help you clear through the glucose that you have. And, and indeed, you know, that's a bit of a you know, cheeky perspective on it, independent of the, the abundance of clinical data. But if we're looking at someone with type 2 diabetes, the low-carb diet often will outperform the low-fat diet. That's a huge, huge question I have. So what do you think about, so like I said, I had on Cyrus and Robbie who wrote Mastering Diabetes, and they talk about a high-carb, low-fat approach. And they posit that actually fat, specifically saturated fat, is the mechanism of action for impeding insulin use in the cells. Like That's actually the cause and that low carb is while it lowers your blood glucose that it actually is creating insulin resistance that we just don't see because we're not eating glucose. Well, they're totally wrong, uh frankly. <laughs> they are they are absolutely wrong. So, well, they're not totally wrong. There is truth to this, but they unfortunately that perspective which is very common kind of in the in the plant-based culture or or group to say well saturated fat will kind of block the insulin receptor. And, and that is true. That is absolutely true. I've in fact done those, literally done those experiments myself and, and published actual manuscripts and presented data at scientific meetings on this, the very specific biochemical process whereby that can happen. So I will state conclusively, saturated fat is a cause of insulin resistance. But the problem is in what data the person is looking at. So for example, the studies that would come to that conclusion, including my own, that saturated fat is contributing to insulin resistance. And indeed, I I bet they would cite a couple of my own studies. They are artificial models. I mean, I have indeed published on this. That was largely the work of, in fact, my highest impact factor paper I've ever published was one of those, detailing one of those mechanisms. However, they're artificial mechanisms. Those are artificial models. It's when you are treating cells with saturated fat in the culture, the cell culture medium, or you are infusing saturated fat into, into the animal or the human's bloodstream directly, those are artificial. What, and in fact, it, that was a painful process for me. I would want anyone to know, having contributed to that paradigm, that perspective, that saturated fat is, is a leading driver of insulin resistance, it, it required me, I needed to step out of my own hole that I dug scientifically and ask myself, is this a, a real model? And, and, and the answer is no. And so what happens then when a person is eating saturated fat? That's the question that should be asked. And in fact, remarkably, eating saturated fat does not contribute to circulating saturated fats. In fact, this has been shown in, in some of the work by Volick and Finney, some of the great low-carb gurus uh, I, they would hate that term, and I do too. So one of the, some of the great contributors to what we know with regards to low-carb diets, on the low-carb diet, their, their, their low-carb group 
was eating three or four times more saturated fat than the low-fat group. Remarkably, not only did they have significantly greater improvements in insulin and glucose, but they also had significantly, they did not have a significant increase in their saturated fats in their blood. And that's because there's, there's nuance that needs to be appreciated. When someone eats saturated fat, that saturated fat does not just spill into the bloodstream unless it's a short chain, you know, a medium or short chain fat. And in fact, even though those are, those are um, saturated fats, the medium and short chain fats, they actually stimulate insulin sensitivity. And that's quite well established, including the shortest of the, short, the, shorted, the saturated fats, acetic acid or, or vinegar, those improve insulin sensitivity despite being completely saturated. But nevertheless, in, in this study, they found no increase in, in plasma circulating saturated fats and in contrast, an improvement in insulin sensitivity. So eating saturated fat is not the same as treating cells with saturated fat or, or infusing it directly into the bloodstream. Those are two, of course, very artificial studies. And, and once again, then, then or, or not once again, but so we ask, well, then where, what provides, what dictates the amount of saturated fat in the blood? And the predominant saturated fat in the blood is palmitate. If someone has an increase in palmitate, it's actually because the liver is making it. The liver very readily produces palmitate through a process called lipogenesis. And once again, it comes back to the hormone insulin. Insulin dictates lipogenesis if insulin is elevated. So you can have someone who's eating zero carbohydrate, or sorry, zero fat, and zero saturated fat, and yet they could paradoxically have an increase in saturated fat in their blood because they're spiking their insulin all the time. And insulin tells the liver to make palmitate the predominant saturated fat, and then to release that into the triglyceride-rich lipoproteins like VLDL. So saturated fat does cause insulin resistance in artificial models. In the whole human, when the person has ingested saturated fat, assuming that insulin is low, there's zero evidence to suggest that that saturated fat, first of all, accumulates in the blood, and second, is contributing to insulin resistance. So to clarify, talking about saturated fat being an issue with messing with insulin and how it interacts with the cells is that when we eat saturated fat, it does not necessarily pop up in the cell to do that. Yeah, it gets carried, it gets carried on the chylomicron and then it gets largely taken up by the liver. And then, in fact, when a saturated fat is stored or comes to a cell, if it even gets to the cell, often the saturated fat is is elongated and desaturated, oddly enough. And that is why even if someone's eating purely saturated fat, if you actually look at the composition of fat in their fat cells, it's almost completely oleic acid. It's 18-1, the monounsaturated fat, because that's how the fat cell stores fat. Oleic acid is the predominant stored fat, regardless of what type of fat they're eating, even saturated. The cells will elongate and desaturate. That, that saturated fat typically in order to store it as 18-1. Isn't olive oil really high in oleic acid? Is that a health benefits? Well, yeah, I don't know, actually. That's a good question because based on what I said, someone could counter and say, oh, wait, if, if, if 18-1, if like oleic acid, olive oil fat is the preferred fat in the body, then I'm not going to eat as much and then I won't store as much. And of course, that, that doesn't happen that way. Interestingly, 18-1... In these same studies that I just mentioned, where we would expose something to pure saturated fat in what is, we need to be clear, an artificial model, then 
if we actually co-incubate or co-infuse with 18-1, the 18-1 stops the saturated fat from, from actually becoming ceramides and, and antagonizing insulin signaling. So what the saturated fats are attempting to do, the 18-1, in the case of insulin resistance, undoes or it prevents it. In fact, I did that study very directly. I exposed muscle cells to palmitate and muscle cells with palmitate and oleate in equal amounts, and it completely prevented the palmitate from doing anything. And I, I think that there's something important there in that these natural, certainly animal-based fats, are a tremendously varied source of fat that we look at beef and we'll say, oh, look at all that terrible saturated fat. Well, depending on the animal, that fat can almost be as much unsaturated, monounsaturated, as, as it is saturated. So it's, it's not really fair, you know, for people to look at animal meats or animal fats at all and just assume it's all saturated. In fact, there's, there's sort of some beautiful nuance there. And, and I would say that there's no, there's zero natural fat that is, and the natural fats I consider to be animal fats and fruit fats that are purely saturated. The most saturated of all is most certainly actually coconut oil. And yeah, and coconut oil is, is almost totally saturated, far, far more than any animal source of fat, literally any. Um, it's much, much more totally saturated than any animal source of fat. And, and the, the actual clinical studies in humans find that if you give people coconut oil, it's, it's better for them. You give animals an isocaloric diet that has either coconut oil or soybean oil, and the soybean oil will make them fatter than the coconut oil, even though they're eating the exact same amount of calories. So I, I am not at all a, a fan, and I think it is totally unjustified to, to throw saturated fat under the bus, most certainly in the context of insulin resistance. There may be other reasons for someone to fear saturated fat if, it, if they're very worried about their lipids and they have familial hypercholesterolemia. So I'm not trying to just say saturated fats should get a, a green light in any instance, although I think often it, they should because they're natural fats and we've, we've, they're ancestral fats. We've evolved very well on eating them. To say that dietary saturated fat is going to cause insulin resistance in a human, I don't believe there's evidence to support that. One last quick nuance question. You, you said something about how the saturated fat in the context of low insulin does not go down that pathway. What about in the context of a mixed diet, high insulin, and desaturated fat? No, no, I see. No, no, I totally get what you're saying. Like, let's say, let's say the person who's eating the plain hamburger patty or the, ha the patty with the bun. I think that, I think that's a relevant question. I, I cannot say the degree to which that saturated fat is going to change how it's going to be digested and, and absorbed through the lymph, you know, into the chylomicron if insulin is high. But so, so I don't know. I don't know of any evidence to support that idea. But I would say eating saturated fat and making saturated fat because of the spiked insulin from the bun, that's probably not great. Well, for any number of reasons, and saturated fat would be the least of them, frankly. But even still, Melanie, as I'm thinking about that, I'm thinking, well, what if it was the bun and an equal amount of, of olive oil by, by calorie being consumed, you know, pure olive oil? I don't know. There's just no evidence. I'm aware. I don't, I'm not aware of any evidence. And I'm, I obviously am having a hard time kind of thinking through that. But I, I will say this. That's probably not a great mix. I don't think the bun and the patty should be eaten together, you know, for any number of reasons. 
and saturated fat might be one of them. Well, actually, to that point, because this is the question I've had, I asked them, the Cyrus and Robbie, and then you talked about in the book, but you had the opposite answer that they gave. (laughs) And that was as far as like insulin resistance, potential issues, the ordering of fats and carbs. Because the way I was thinking about it was if you ate the carbs first, they would, and maybe I'm thinking about this too simplistically, but like if you ate the carbs first, I assume they would either get burned or stored as glycogen. And then if you ate fat, I guess I might be thinking of it wrong now that you explained how fat doesn't really create that clog up effect. But I was thinking there could be a problem if you ate the fat first and it was entering cells and then blocking insulin's ability to let carbs in. And then maybe the carbs would be not be able to gain entrance. And I'm probably thinking about this way too simplistically. Well, well, and I don't know that you are. So fat going into a cell does not make a fat cell, does not make a cell insulin resistant. That, that needs to be stated very conclusively. And, and part of this is very well documented in something what's called the athlete's paradox, where, where some scientists, I think they were at UPenn, found that, that people were suggesting, well, all this fat storage in the obese muscle is contributing to the insulin resistance. And then paradoxically, they found that athletes had just as much fat stored in their muscle as obese people, endurance-trained athletes, and yet they were exquisitely insulin-sensitive. So fat entering into a cell most certainly does not make the cell insulin-resistant. Now, of course, some fats can, namely ceramides, can antagonize the insulin signal, but a cell isn't just going to make ceramides willy-nilly, certainly not to a high enough level to become a problem. You need a signal to stimulate the ceramide synthesis like, for example, inflammation or, or excessively elevated insulin, both of those, in fact, the latter, in fact, I've actually published papers on, on both of those exact topics detailing how that happens. So, so the idea that, you know, the fat comes into the cell and blocks the insulin receptor, that, that's just, you know, not quite accurate or it's just overly simplified. You have to have additional signals that come in to play to tell the cell what to do with that fat, you know, to make it into ceramides. So, you know, of course, that does mean fat has some role. Now, the order of eating, I don't know what data they were invoking when they say that it should be it should be carbs first and then the others. I would say for the sake of fat mass, it doesn't matter. If you're eating fat and carbs together, you're going to get fat, whether it's the fat first or the carbs first. It doesn't matter, I, I would say. But I'm speculating. I don't know the studies have looked at that that far. But I, I do know for a fact, because of the studies that I cited in my book, that that when you eat fat and protein first, and then it's the carbohydrate at the end, that does yield a significantly different insulin curve and glucose curve from eating the carbohydrates at the beginning. And that's why I said it the way I did in the book, you know, kind of put carbs last. I, I, I think in practice, I don't know how much that really should affect any person's method of eating. You know, like I imagine. You know, I mean, this is silly, of course, but someone eating a hamburger and they say, well, I really want that bun. I'm going to eat the patty first and then I'm going to eat the bun. You know, in, in, in reality, people eat them together. And so I think once again, we're, it's sort of splitting hairs. I, I, I do believe one of the, the plagues of the modern diet is high fat, high carb. Those things, those two don't come together in nature. In fact, carbs don't really come with anything. In nature, carbohydrates tend to come alone. You know, a fruit is like purely carbohydrate, whereas nature has proteins and fats come together. Now, I understand there are some carbohydrate kind of protein sources 
like like beans, or, for example, or nuts. But those kinds of proteins can never, they truly don't compare to the amino acid profile or the absorption potential of animal source protein. So I think a diet that is trying to get its protein from plants, a human diet that's trying to get all its protein from plants is going to be protein deficient. Frankly, uh, not to mention, well, one, because they won't get the full complement of amino acids that they need, certainly not from any single plant. And then plants have anti-nutrients in them. So especially if you're looking at a, a processed plant protein like pea or soy, we know that they become enriched with molecules that directly inhibit protein digestion in the gut, like trypsin inhibitors or, or phytic acids. Those are, are, are genuinely real molecules, not to mention the heavy metals like lead and arsenic that can come in processed plant proteins as well. But nevertheless, in nature, most of the carbohydrates that we eat are pure carbohydrate, whereas the protein that we eat, if we were focusing on protein, it always comes with fat. And, and so once again, once again, I'd say nature is sort of hinting at perhaps how we ought to be building our diet. Okay. And then one more question about all of this, and I've hinted at it a few times, but when people go on low carb diets, you talked about this, like all the studies show that there's so many beneficial changes in insulin sensitivity and blood glucose levels and all of these things. What about the idea of physiological insulin resistance and that go on these low carb diets that you actually, you know, are losing some, some ability to tolerate carbohydrates. And then also I can tie in one more little question, sneak another question that ties into it as well, but it's the similar concept. It seems in the context, like if you keep this diet that's low carb and you keep insulin levels low and you keep blood sugar glucose controlled, it seems to be, you know, very beneficial reversing disease, you know, bringing back health, all these great benefits. But I just wonder, do you have to be on that for life? And are there problems if you fall off of it? And the, the similar question I have is like, you were talking about LDL and you talk in your book at length, I learned so much about HDL and the different types of LDL and everything that's going on there. But like a lot of people on lower carb diets will see higher LDL levels and maybe in the context of that diet, it's helpful and non-inflammatory and protective and even healing. But then is it a case where if they, you know, have some carbs or change things up that now their their body is, because of the high LDL, going to be in a more precarious state? I, I think a lot about, I know you've been on Paul Saladino on his show and I've had him on twice. I know he talks a lot right now about his like really, really high LDL levels, but that in context, it's okay. Yeah. So existing in this state? Yeah, these are great questions. First question with regards to physiological insulin resistance. I don't approve of how people use that term. Insulin resistance, I maintain, is defined how I defined it earlier, which is some cells are compromised in their insulin signaling. And the second aspect I believe must be included in that definition, which is that insulin levels are higher. Now, now I appreciate that one person may say, well, that's not how I'm defining insulin resistance. And that might be the problem where there's just simply not a common vernacular, but I will strongly defend that definition and would do so, you know, in any court of law or court of science. So physiological insulin resistance is a thing, but I do strongly believe it's invoked incorrectly. Now, the insulin resistance that I study as a, as a practicing, publishing, presenting scientist is, is pathological insulin resistance. So that which, of course, predominates in our, in our world today and that which is relevant to you know weight gain and and virtually every chronic disease in ways that we've touched on previously however 
not all insulin resistance is bad, and that is the physiological insulin resistance. And to my knowledge, the only instances of this are the two Ps, pregnancy and puberty. And those are both times where the body has deliberately altered its insulin signaling potentially to just fuel some explosive growth or some selective growth in the body and to stimulate excess levels of other hormones involved in, say, reproduction. So uh, in, in both of those instances, puberty and pregnancy, insulin is elevated. So once again, even in this context of physiological insulin resistance, so insulin resistance that is serving a purpose to either grow the little boy or girl or for mom to grow a baby, once again, hyperinsulinemia is, is, is part of this definition. So, I, I once, so I'm defending that definition that insulin resistance is a state of hyperinsulinemia. So that's part of why having defined that and presented it that way, that's why I resent the term physiological insulin resistance being invoked in the context of a low-carb diet. It's because insulin, in fact, drops wonderfully. Insulin is not elevated. They have normal or, or low insulin low normal. You know, it's not deficient insulin, I should be clear to say. So that to me right there immediately tosses out that definition. And when we when we do these kinds of studies, certainly in an in, in animal model, which is a little problematic, of course, but if they have ad adapted to a, a smart ketogenic diet, which is to say one that is not enriched in soybean oil, like most animal studies are, unfortunately, if we give them a load of insulin, they respond to that insulin dramatically and their glucose levels drop a great deal. And humans, it's a similar phenomenon. They, there is no evidence, none, to suggest that a human becomes insulin resistant in any way when they have adopted and adapted to a low-carb diet. None. There's no, I know of no single manuscript to suggest that they've become insulin resistant as a result of adapting to that low-carb diet. Now, what might be some of the truth in people embracing that perspective is that people can become somewhat glucose intolerant with long-term adherence to a low-carb diet. And I, like I refer to that, to my knowledge, I'm the only one who refers to it, so maybe I've made this up, or others are, are, are equally you know, clever, if I can pat myself on the back, where it's, it's a reverse metabolic inflexibility. So very briefly, in insulin resistance, what abounds, and because insulin resistance is so common, this is so common, people are metabolically inflexible in favor of glucose. So metabolic flexibility, and you know, and I'm sure your listeners know, so I'll be very brief. It's just this phenomenon whereby, phenomenon whereby a person can shift between glucose burning after they've eaten and a few hours after they've eaten when they've entered a so-called fasted state, now they shift to fat burning. And they can, they can shift between these two, these two fuels, operating like a clean hybrid metabolic engine. Unfortunately, with type 2 diabetes or insulin resistance, you know, pre-diabetes, a person is stuck in glucose burning mode, and that's a result of the chronically elevated insulin because insulin dictates fuel use, something I mentioned at the beginning of the discussion. And if insulin is elevated, the body can only it, the body is predominantly burning glucose. And so, although, of course, unfortunately, not too well, and that's partly why we see the glucose climbing in the individual. But in this case, that is metabolic inflexibility in favor of the glucose. The person eats. They're in glucose burning mode. They fast, you know, so hours later, they're still in glucose burning mode. They haven't shifted to fat burning. In contrast to this, in stark contrast, someone who's been adhering to a low carb diet for a sufficiently long time to, to adapt, you know, however long that would be, and there's no definite time point there, but let's say it's been long enough to adapt. Now they are, if you will, stuck in fat burning mode. 
that is most certainly, and I would vigorously defend it, that is not as pathological as being stuck in glucose burning mode, if for no other reason than the glucose burning metabolic inflexibility is typified by chronically elevated insulin, which drives a host of pathologies. In contrast, being stuck, if you will, in fat burning, being metabolically inflexible in that direction would be typified as low insulin, and there's not a single pathology that would arise because of normal or low insulin. And so, but nevertheless, there's something to be said for that. The person is metabolically inflexible in favor of fat. And so if they load their system with glucose, it will take them longer to clear that glucose than it would have perhaps before they started the low-carb diet. And that there, I think, is part of why people say physiological insulin resistance. That is a misnomer. It is an inaccurate term, and I do think people should stop using it. They should say either a reverse metabolic inflexibility, if they want to quote Dr. Bickman, or they could say they are glucose intolerant. That is not the same. That is not the same as insulin resistance, because if you give them a load of insulin, they will have very low levels of glucose very, very quickly. And the man I mentioned earlier, George Cahill, has kind of done some of those experiments in people that were fasted and you know naturally fat adapted. Give them insulin and their glucose plummets. That right there refutes the idea of, of insulin resistance in any way, shape, or form. So low-carb adaptation or fat adaptation is not insulin resistance at all. I would say it does serve a purpose. So it, it is a physiological phenomenon, but they have become glucose intolerant. It's essentially the body's way of saying, I'm not eating glucose. I'm, I have fat and fat is what I'm fueling on. And, and so I've turned off the glucose burning mechanisms and it simply takes a couple days to turn it back on. And so if someone needed to go in and pass a glucose tolerance test in a clinical setting and they've been long-term adhering to a low-carb diet, then I would say, you know what, you should probably spike in the carbs over the next few days to prepare and then you'll go into that test and you'll pass it perfectly fine. And, and, and they very, very likely would. Now, Melanie, having said all of that, I would also want someone to say that I, I, as much as I am an advocate of a low-carb diet for someone who has concerns with regards to metabolic health, I'm also quite practical. And, and so I, I, I don't believe, unless a person has a genuine clinical reason, like say epilepsy, where they have to stay in ketosis to control their seizures, I don't think there's a reason someone has to be extremely strict. And I am very favorable with regards to fruits and vegetables, certainly in my diet and even the people I talk to. So my kind of, my pillars that I outlined earlier, which, which starts with control carbohydrates, when someone asks me to define that one step further, you're not asking, but I'm going to tell you anyway, I, I say actually focus on fruits and vegetables. And in, in general, if you're focusing on eating fruits and vegetables and you're being careful with the starchy grains and certainly the, the sugary junk food, then that is a great strategy. And then just eat those fruits and vegetables, don't drink them. And so I think if someone is doing that, and even though they're, they're shifting more of their focus to protein and fat, but they're eating fruits and vegetables, which again, I'm totally in favor of, I don't know that they would ever develop, develop even that degree of glucose intolerance or that reverse metabolic inflexibility that I mentioned. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of why I'm an advocate of that in the end, just kind of realizing the nature of the world that we live in. If someone were just simply going to say, I'm never going to eat carbohydrates ever again, I'd say, well, then you're done. Uh, then you're, any kind of glucose intolerance you develop, it, it's irrelevant. It won't matter. But if they're living in a world where they 
will from time to time be eating carbohydrates. Like I have my little kids and we have some little party or something or, or, or even more often my, my, one of my daughters wants to make dinner and it's, it's, it's a starchy kind of pasta type dinner. I'm absolutely going to eat that. You know, uh, there's no question I'm going to eat what my darling little daughter made for me or anyone, anyone makes or anything anyone makes in my family. And so I think that if we acknowledge the kind of the lay of the land, the reality of the world, which is that carbohydrates are going to be around and you're probably going to eat them, well, then that might be a reason for someone to always have some of them in their diet. But if a person's a type 2 diabetic, then I strongly maintain they would simply have to be more careful and more strict than someone who's doing it, maybe, maybe like in my case, someone who's doing it to just stay lean and keep disease at bay. Really quick question to that with the fruits and vegetables. How important is it? You talk about the difference between the glycemic index and the glycemic load. And I, that actually was a mind blown moment for me because when I was eat, eating the really, really high fruit, I was eating a ton of pineapple and it's actually a seven. It's a seven on glycemic load. And I was like, oh, that is so interesting. Yeah. Well, and pineapple's so yummy. It's so delicious. It breaks down protein really well too. So I was eating basically like tons of meat and pineapple. <laughs> Yeah, well, so so, but even then, Melanie, as much as I, if that were, if I were talking to a, a type two diabetic, and then I, that would sort of be my next level that I would have started with control carbohydrates and say, what do you mean? And I would say, well, focus on fruits and vegetables, and they'd say, well, you know. But then I'd look at the type two diabetic and say, well, actually, for you, focus on the least of the sugary fruits and vegetables. You know, like be careful with pineapples and mangoes, for example, and and the starchiest of the vegetables, like potatoes, for example, and then anything else, you know, generally you're going to be fine with, you know, citrus fruits, I'm, I'm very okay with personally, and, and any, virtually any vegetable, in fact, not virtually any vegetable that grows above the ground, even in, with the strictest of, of type 2 diabetics, I would say you could eat that liberally. So that would be kind of, that's my next level, depending on, on the person and their concern and their worry with type 2 diabetes. Okay, gotcha. Well, I have so many more questions, but I want to be really respectful of your time. One last thing, maybe we can dive in really deep. Do you wear a CGM? Yeah, I sure do. Yeah. In fact, I bet you've probably worked with levels to get yours. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I have one on right now. Mine just expired like yesterday. So I have to put on the new one, but it has been the most eye-opening thing ever. <laughs> and for listeners of CGM, it monitors your glucose constantly. So you can see, you can see how you react to foods, how to fasting, to everything. And like I said, my fasting blood sugars were fine. They were in the nineties, but I wanted them lower. I started taking berberine and it's been shocking what it does to my blood glucose. It brought it down. Yes. It's crazy. Like now I, they're stable in the seventies every day. Yeah, so I, there are these molecules like berberine and even cinnamon and and apple cider vinegar that can that can help bring it down. And and so I'm I'm very warm minded on those kinds of supplements if someone's trying to control their glucose. But I'm also quick to say that if I were talking to a type two diabetic who who continues to eat a very high sugar, high starch diet, I would say all the berberine, all the cinnamon in the world isn't going to help you if you don't have your macros managed. And so. My perspective on those supplements is mind your macros. And then if you need a little boost, if you need a little more nudge, and then absolutely things like berberine and, and some others, a handful of others can absolutely help make up that last little bit of difference. 
Yeah, it was really incredible. But then I think I got a little bit too excited and I made myself a little bit hypoglycemic a few times. I was like, I got to figure out how to, (laughs) I tend to go crazy. Listeners, you have got to get why we get sick. I mean, this has been a two hour conversation and I didn't even get to like half of the things I wanted to ask you. Like there's so much in this book. So friends get the book. It will like open your eyes to so many things. He talks about so many things that we didn't talk about, all of these different health conditions and how insulin relates to them, the diet, the exercise protocols, which we touched on briefly in this episode, but dives in deeper, the science, how stress affects insulin. I mean, so many things. I cannot thank you enough for this book. I feel like I've been waiting for this book for for years. Um, I just feel like on my, my other show, like I said, the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, Jen and I talk about insulin all the time. And so it's just so nice to see it finally, you know, being made more public with things like your work. So I really cannot thank you enough. Oh, my pleasure, Melanie. Thanks again. I'm so delighted you reached out. This has been time well spent. I hope that uh, your listeners feel gratified and educated. I promise this is the last question. It's literally the last question I ask every guest. And it's just because I've realized how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, thank you for asking. I am now more than ever, I am so grateful for my family. And and I, I, I sometimes I try to find ways to work this into conversations. As much as it seems, you know, someone listening to this would just think, boy, Ben is a scientist. Yeah, sure, I am. But that's just a means to an end. That's a hobby. And I am a husband first. I'm a father second. But don't tell my kids that. I mean, my loyalties to my wife first, but my kids are right there too. Yeah, I, I, I'm my family. I'm so grateful for my family. And that might seem kind of trite or cliche. But really, when the world gets crazy, I think it helps us look more inside. And for me, that's looking in my home and and really asking what I'm doing to help my family, to protect my family, to raise my family. And there's a tremendous responsibility. It's it's overwhelming often, but that is, at the end of every day, what I'm most grateful for. I love that so much. Well, thank you. So like I said, I'm so grateful. Listeners, get the book. Are there any other links you want to throw out there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Yeah. So by all means, go buy the book. If if this conversation was stimulating, you'll f- have a lot more material that you'll find engaging in why we get sick. More, uh, also, I'm involved with an education platform called Insulin IQ, which hopefully will be making a kind of an, a coaching aspect to that. And then gethealth.com, H-L-T-H, that's how health is spelled in this case, gethealth.com is a venture I've started with a couple of my brothers just to kind of make a better low-carb shake. And then I'm fairly active on social media, mostly Instagram, which I've just found more and more. It's funny, I started on Twitter and it's just increasingly hostile. I don't, I don't like Twitter as much. And I found the Instagram crowd is just so much nicer. So anyway, on Instagram, it's Ben Bickman, PhD. And Bickman is just B-I-K-M-A-N, no C, Ben Bickman, PhD. Awesome. So for listeners, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Again, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash insulin. Thank you so much. This was so incredible. I'm so happy right now. And hopefully we can talk again in the future because this was amazing. I would love it. I would love it. I had a great time. Melanie, thanks so much. Thanks, Ben. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.